Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and truth. A man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You the truth. Now, here's David Fiorazzo. Good morning, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ and the remnant in the body. Thank you so much for tuning in and welcome to another edition of Stand Up for the Truth. Very important show today as we talk about the authority of Scripture. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us another opportunity to just dig into your word, go to the Bible and see what it says about your teachings, about what you say about events and about your word. And from that perspective, Lord, we catapult into what's happening in the world around us, in our culture, and in the church, Lord, when it comes to false teachings. Please give us discernment. Be glorified today. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. Have your way, and may truth be exalted in the name of Jesus be exalted. We lift up this hour to you, and we thank you again for the freedom that we have here in America, the free speech, and the opportunity to do a program like this in Jesus' name. Amen. On today's Stand Up for the Truth, our focus is evangelism and, of course, the truth of God's Word. Why so many religions and denominations? Nearly one in five people worldwide identify with the Roman Catholic Church, which is our subject today. Many are serious practitioners, while others have no idea what their church's teachings include. But it's a very popular religion that kind of feeds on uh, the need that many people have to rely on good works and doing good. The problem is they then miss the importance of the authority of Scripture and that foundation. They miss the true gospel and justification by faith. Today's guest writes, quote, People are unconcerned about so great a salvation because they do not know the reality of Almighty God's divine justice towards sin or the sinner's helpless and hopeless condition. As the eternal creator of everything, God is holy and requires perfect obedience to his law. Man has broken God's law, and the consequence for his sin is death and separation from God. People need to know that man can do nothing to save himself, and that divine justice must be satisfied. That's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a merciful Lord who purchased full atonement for all who will turn to him in repentance and faith. Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries is a gifted gifted evangelist, author of Contending for the Gospel and Preparing for Eternity. But for over 35 years or 34 years, Mike was a devout Roman Catholic, but that all changed in the early 1980s while attending an evangelical seminar when he realized the Bible is the supreme authority for knowing truth. He exchanged his religion for a relationship with his all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. He preaches the gospel for a living and hasn't looked back. Great to have you on Stand Up for the Truth, Mike. Well, David, it's good to be with you, and we really do need to be standing for the truth today because the greatest attack on Christianity today is on the exclusivity and the purity of the gospel. So if we're not getting the gospel right, then lost sinners have no hope. Amen. Let's go back to uh, something you wrote in a recent newsletter called uh, God's Word Continues to Set Catholics Free. I wasn't aware of this particular quote from Martin Luther. He said, 
all I have done is put forth, preach, and write the word of God, and apart from this I have done nothing, the word has achieved everything. And you say the Reformers wanted to put the Bible into the hands of the people so people could read and be set free, but the early church, the Catholic Church, didn't want that to happen. Can we go back and touch on a little bit of that history, Mike? Well, sure. In fact, I really resonate with Martin Luther's testimony because, like Martin Luther, it was the Spirit of God and the Word of God that set me free from religious deception and religious bondage. And it was at a three-day seminar that I understood the Bible needed to become my supreme authority in all matters of truth. As a devout Catholic, I had three different authorities, and they were all said to be equal. But in reality, it was the bishops of the Church that set above sacred scripture and tradition, and they did an amazing job of twisting and distorting scriptures so it harmonized with their ungodly tradition. And so it really was refreshing for me to know that there was an absolute infallible authority on this earth, and it was the inspired Word of God. And so as I began reading it, I had a crisis of faith. Am I going to trust Christ and His Word or the teachings and traditions of my religion And as a logical, analytical person, I knew I could not believe both. It was impossible. They were diametrically opposed. And so it was then that God granted me repentance and gave me eyes to see the truth, and I put my faith in Christ as my all-sufficient Savior. And I repented of all my dead works and all my sacraments and law-keeping, and Christ alone was my only hope of salvation. And I've never been the same. It literally turned my life upside down. And David, soon after that, I realized that the only two things in this life that are eternal would be the Word of God and the souls of men, and I wanted to invest the rest of my life in those two things that would last throughout all eternity. Amen. If you'd like to interact, by the way, with Mike and have a question or comment during the broadcast today, text the keyword, speak up, to our new provider, 90100, or you can email comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Mike Gendron, let's go back to 1545, the Council of Trent. And I wasn't aware, and you confirmed this in your newsletter, and I read this in another book over the weekend, that the Catholic Church put the Holy Bible on their list of forbidden books at that 16th century Council of Trent. I wasn't aware of that. Yes, in fact, it's you, anybody that uh, doubts whether or not what I've said is true can just simply go to a Catholic bookstore or a library. They can pull out off the bookshelf um, the decrees and dogmas of the Council of Trent, and there in the index they will have a list of forbidden books, and you will see the Bible is placed there. <laughs> and a lot of people would wonder, well, why would a Christ-exalting religion such as Roman Catholicism put the Word of God on their list of forbidden books? And the answer lies in the fact that Reformers were being set free by reading and studying and believing the Word of God. Because as you know from Scripture, in Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, we see that we are to pray for those in opposition to the gospel, that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so they can escape the snare of the devil that holds them captive to do his will. And David, the only way anyone can be set free from the snare of the devil and from the bondage of religious deception is to be a true disciple of Christ. It was in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, 
that Jesus said, if you truly are a disciple of mine, you will abide in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I was set free from the bondage of religious deception, and so were the Reformers, which is why the Catholic Church put the Bible on the list of forbidden books. Now, we must let your audience know that the Catholic Church no longer has it on its list of forbidden books, but during the Counter-Reformation at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, that's what they did in order to keep people in bondage to religious deception. So today, the Catholic Church actually encourages people to read the Bible, and the truth is still setting people free, as I mentioned in my last newsletter. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And yet, the next thing they did at that Council of Trent in 1545, for the first time, the Catholic Church's official position was that their church tradition was now to be in equal authority with God's Word the Bible. And as we know, in Mark chapter 7, Mike, and I would love for you to talk on this and take as much time as you want, that Jesus preached against the most religious and educated leaders of that day because of their traditions, nullifying the Word of God. Well, that's true. In fact, we can learn so much from the first century church. It was the Lord Jesus who was a friend of sinners, but he got very angry toward the religious leaders. It was a righteous anger because they were holding people in bondage for the sake of their tradition, thus nullifying the Word of God, as you said. And so when you look at Roman Catholicism, it really is an extension of apostate Judaism because they have their same traditions that nullify the Word of God, and they also have an altar. They have their showbread, which is the Eucharist, they have sacerdotal priesthood offering sacrifices for sins. And when you look at Roman Catholicism, it is uh, an apostate form of Christianity that dares to say its traditions that have evolved over the last 1,600 years are equal to the Word of God. And David, it's also important for your listeners to know that the Roman Catholic Church has added their traditions to the Word of God. They mm -hmm. dare to say that their traditions that have evolved over 1,600 years are part of God's Word. And just some of those traditions that the Catholic Church have added that really nullify not only God's Word, but also oppose the Gospel. In 431, they introduced baptismal regeneration. In 500 A.D., they actually instituted the sacrifice of the Mass, which is a representation of Jesus Christ in the form of a Eucharist on an altar, denying the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then they also added things like indulgences and purgatory. They also elevated Mary to a status of a co-redeemer and a co-mediatrix. And um, it really is amazing when you look at Roman Catholic traditions because they are set there to hold people in religious bondage. And again, when people submit to the supreme authority inspired word, then they will know the truth, and that truth will set them free. Amen. And some of those other unbiblical traditions, Mike, um, there's so many, but I've just got a handful of here, some bullet points I thought we'd try to get to today. 
Um, first of all, I do want you to, to expound on baptism and the Eucharist, which the Mass, the transubstantiation, the teaching that the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ when taken at communion. Then there's the doctrine of purgatory, which we absolutely have to touch on. Um, confession to a priest, to a man, as mediator for absolution of sins, and many, many more. But let's go back to baptism, and then we'll get to the Eucharist in the Mass, Mike. Sure. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the sacrament of baptism, which is normally administered to a Catholic who's seven seven days old, they say that sacrament is not only the sacrament of regeneration, whereby original sin is washed away and they are born again through the efficacious waters of baptism, but they also say it is the sacrament of of, um, justification. And so we know from Scripture that justification is by faith, and a seven-day-old infant has no capacity to put their faith in anything. But again, they deny the Word of God. They dare to say that through water baptism, the child has been born again and is now justified before God, and that places them on the road to heaven. But later on, when they become um, accountable, they commit a mortal sin, and then they are said to be de-justified. <laughs> now they have to be re-justified through the sacrament of penance, and only by doing good works can they mm. obtain the grace necessary for salvation in order to be re-justified. So a Catholic goes through this cycle hundreds of times in their life, never knowing where they stand before a holy and righteous God. That is um, so far removed from Scripture, because we know from Scripture that a person that is justified by faith is justified forever. And we see in Hebrews 10.14, by one offering he has made perfect forever. So the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the repenting sinner who has placed their faith in Christ, and that righteousness remains in their account forever. And so uh, that is the true nature of justification. It is by faith. It's instantaneous. It's an imputation or accrediting of Christ's righteousness. And sin and good works have no effect on a person standing before the Lord. They are declared righteous forever. Amen. So what you're saying is the the baptism that they have as the Catholic Church, the sacrament of baptism, they believe that um, the baby is actually, did you say regenerated, I mean, meaning, meaning saved? That's right, born again. So wh- how do you differentiate that, Mike, from a dedication? Because there's nothing wrong with having a dedication service, like a lot of Christian churches do that. We offer our children to the Lord and, and, and commit them to living a life for Christ, and of course parents' responsibility plays into that. But how do you differentiate that, the sacrament of baptism in the Catholic Church, and dedicating an infant? Yeah, that's a good question, David. A dedication has no impact on a baby's spiritual life. What they're doing in dedication is uh, dedicating the baby to the Lord, and the parents are making a commitment to bring up the child in the love and admonition of the Lord. And the church is also making a commitment to do that as well. So that is entirely opposed to baptismal regeneration, where a person's spiritual life is actually changed They're said to be no longer dead in their sins, but alive in Christ, and they're now justified. They have a right standing before God. So water baptism does none of of that. In fact, water baptism in Scripture is only for believers. In fact, we see in Acts 10.47, um, 
the question is asked, who can keep these people from being water baptized? They have already received the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So clearly we see regeneration comes first, and then water baptism is the first act of obedience after a person has placed their faith in Christ. It's a public declaration that I'm going to follow Christ, and it's a recognition that Christ is their Savior. Yes. Thank you, Mike. And uh, let's go back now to the Eucharist of the Mass. Transubstantiation. Sounds like a big word. And when Jesus uh, had his Last Supper with the disciples, he held up elements, you know, bread and wine, and said, do this whenever you take it. Remember me. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, obviously, he, his physical body was present with his disciples, and he's holding up bread and wine. Where does the Roman Catholic Church get the idea that the actual elements, the bread and the wine, become the literal body and blood of Christ? Well, a couple of things. You, you mentioned that we are to do that in remembrance. It's not a sacrifice. It's a memorial of Christ's death. And we are to do it until he returns. It's a, the Lord's Supper. But the Catholic Church has taken the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, where he spoke figuratively, and they've taken them literally. And in John chapter 6, it's the Lord Jesus who says, You must eat my body and drink my blood for eternal life. But in another verse, he says, If you behold me and believe in me, you have eternal life. And so clearly, verses 40 and verses 54 both result in eternal life, the eating and drinking and the beholding and believing. And so we have to ask Catholics, well, what what happens if you behold and believe, but you don't eat and drink? Do you have eternal life? Or what happens if you eat and drink, but you don't behold and believe the Lord Jesus? Do you have eternal life? The only way you can reconcile verse 40 and verse 54 in John chapter 6 is to take one literally and one figuratively. So clearly Jesus is speaking in a figurative language when he says, you must eat my body and drink my blood. We can also see this from John 16:25, where Jesus said, I have spoken to you in a figurative language. Hmm. But we also see at the end of... Um, the words of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, uh, Peter asked the question, uh, after everybody that was an unbeliever departs, Jesus said, are you going to leave also? And Peter says, no, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. He didn't say you have the flesh and the blood of eternal life, but the words. So Peter knew that Jesus was speaking figuratively. And so we need to encourage uh, your listeners when they witness to Roman Catholics to make sure they understand John chapter 6, because this is where they go in order to try and prove that you must eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus. It's in verse 54 where Jesus said, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But in verse 40, he says, for this is the will of the Lord that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. 
So, David, the other interesting thing is that they take the eating and drinking literally in mm. verse 54, but they don't take the words eternal life literally, because Roman Catholics do not have eternal life. They have conditional life. In fact, one of the great verses to take Catholics to is 1 John 5.13, where John writes to those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you may know that you have eternal, everlasting life. But Catholics don't believe that. They have conditional life. Whether or not they get to heaven depends on whether or not they die in the state of grace and not in the state of mortal sin. But I would like to read you one quote that has the official imprimatur of the Catholic Church. This is a quote by Richard O'Brien, who's a Roman Catholic priest in his book, The Faith of Millions. He says, and I quote, When the priest announces the words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, he brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Oh, my goodness. David, that is so hard for me to read, but uh, this is what Roman Catholics believe. Mm. The priest is actually calling the omnipotent God, the Lord Jesus Christ, down from heaven to continue on an altar what he finished on the cross. And this is a power that is greater than saints and angels. It's it's just mind-boggling that Roman Catholics actually believe this. And I can tell you, as a very devout Catholic for over 30 years of my life, I really believed I was literally eating Jesus and drinking his blood. Mm. And so this is uh, idolatry. This is when the priest lifts up that Eucharist and says the body of Christ and Catholics say amen, that is the most serious sin of idolatry. And we know that the Eucharist is not Christ because Jesus must remain in heaven until his enemies are made his footstool. We see that in third chapter of Acts, but I think a more important verse might be Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, where we read that Jesus must, I'm sorry, Jesus will return a second time and not in relation to sin. So clearly the Eucharist is a false Christ. Jesus is still in heaven. He hasn't returned a second time because the Bible tells us when, where, and how Jesus will return. He will return to the Mount of Olives. Mm -hmm. He will return after the tribulation, and he will return the same way he left. And so we must warn Catholics, you are committing the most serious sin of idolatry when you worship the Eucharist Mm. as the physical body and blood of Jesus. Just letting those words sink in, Mike. Thank you so very much. This is Standard for the Truth. Mike Gendron is our guest today. You can text any questions or comments to speak up. And that is our new provider. You can send it to 90100. Uh, When we come back, um, is there such a thing as the purifying fires of purgatory? How about the veneration of Mary as another sinless mediator? Pope Francis recently proposed adding ecological sin, sin against the environment, to the Church's teachings, that and much more when we return. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to David Fiorazzo. Our guest 
Today, Mike Gendron proclaiming the gospel ministries. We've got a text from a listener that says, uh, has Mike heard of secret teachings that the Catholic Church uses as an excuse when they don't have an answer for unbiblical doctrines or behavior? Yes, in fact, uh, this is heard quite often when Catholics ask Roman Catholic priests to explain something that goes against the Word of God. They will usually say, well, it's a mystery. Mm. And so that is their way of copying out. And I must inform your listeners that Roman Catholic priests do not know the Word of God. In fact, my uncle was a priest for eight years. I mean, I'm sorry, he was in seminary for eight years. He was a priest for 30 years. And uh, I asked him how many of those eight years in seminary did he spend studying the Word of God, and he boastfully said six months. And so (laughs) I returned to my comment to him was I spent three years in seminary, and the whole three years we spent studying the Word of God. So in Roman Catholicism, the priests spend most of their time learning the religion and very little time studying God's Word. And the traditions of the Church, the Catechism, which we don't have time to get into so many points today we would like to address. That's why we have to have you back, Mike. But we just want to make this point before we move on. The source of traditions, it's important to understand spiritual disciplines are good. Reading the Bible is good. Prayer, going to Bible study, other things you can do. It's good works are good to do. It's a fruit of being saved. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's important to understand that as Protestants, we are not against traditions, but the, here's the focus. As long as that tradition lines up with Scripture, with God's Word, if it, if it contradicts the Bible, then you better start questioning your tradition. Would you like to speak on that before we move on, Mike? Yeah, David, I'm glad you asked that, because there's three verses in the New Testament that really uphold tradition, and we need to make sure that your listeners understand what we're talking about. In Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, Hold to the traditions which you were taught from us. And so they've already been taught, the verb is past tense, and the origin of the script, of the traditions was the apostles. And then you also see in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received, past tense, from us, the apostles. And lastly, 1 Corinthians eleven two, hold firmly to the traditions just as I, the apostle Paul, delivered them, past tense, to you. So in each case, the traditions that we are to hold to were delivered to the first century church. And so we're looking at the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church that have evolved over the last 1600 years. Those are totally different from the traditions taught in the first century. And I think this all is summed up very well in Jude verse 3, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. So the body of truth that we're to contend for was signed, sealed, and delivered in the first century. Anything that comes against that body of truth, we are to contend against, and that includes all the Roman Catholic traditions over the last 1,600 years. That's right. And as we know from Hebrews 10, I believe, uh, Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. And uh, we need to remember that when we talk about the Eucharist, which we did in our first segment. And traditions now, we're, uh, 
uh, finding out where they came from, when the Catholic Church started adding these. If you go through church history, there's a lot of books out there available on that, very good books, which maybe, Mike, I can have you recommend at the end of the hour. I do want to mention your books. I know that you may have uh, more than this, but we've got one here that we looked up called Contending for the Gospel, and you also have another one called Preparing for Eternity. Before we jump into purgatory and, and other issues, would you like to just talk about the, your books real quick? Well, sure. My first book, Preparing for Eternity, was written out of my love and compassion for Roman Catholics. And what I did in that book is I took all of the scriptures that are so clearly given by the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ that point people to eternal salvation by trusting and believing Christ alone for their salvation. And I lined up those scriptures right alongside Roman Catholic traditions that nullify and oppose the Word of God. So all the way through the book, Roman Catholics would have to look at what the Scripture says, then look at what their church teaches, and make a decision. Should I trust Christ and His Word, or the teachings and traditions of my religion? Because it's impossible to believe both. Mike, so this book oh, go ahead, go so ahead. Many Roman, this book has set so many Roman Catholics free from the bondage of religious deception So I highly recommend it to anyone, not only to learn how to be an effective witness to Roman Catholics, but also to give to their Catholic loved ones, because it is written in the spirit of love, and the truth of God's Word shines so brightly. But the second book, Contending for the Gospel, is a book that I just released six months ago, and I was motivated to write it because of the great attacks on the Christian faith today, the compromise of the Gospel. Mm -hmm. Many churches now are not only diluting the gospel and taking the offense of the gospel out so that more people will come into the church and follow their religious leaders, but it's also um, a reason is because we've got this ecumenical movement going today Mm -hmm. where a lot of our evangelical leaders are signing unity accords with Catholics, daring to say that we share a common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this book is... uh, a book for our times. You know, the Lord Jesus said before he returns, there would be great deception on the earth, and and we're seeing that. We're seeing the attack on the exclusivity and the purity of the gospel. So this book is a an excellent tool to help people contend for the treasure that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You brought up a point I want to ask you about how some Catholics might perceive this idea about church traditions, because Uh, To Catholics, the Bible is not the sufficient rule of faith. It's the Bible plus tradition. But you've you've got some Catholics, Mike, who obviously say um, being Catholic is the same as being Christian, while others adamantly say, I'm Catholic, I'm not a Christian. So how could you uh, explain the divide, so to speak? Well, the divide is as far as the distance between heaven and hell, and David, it all starts with a different authority. As you mentioned, the Catholic Church has their scripture, plus their tradition that's an authority for Catholics, plus they have their quote-unquote infallible popes. And so whenever you have an authority other than the Word of God, then that leads to another Jesus. Mm. And whenever you have another Jesus, that leads to another gospel. And whenever you have another gospel, that leads to a different path to eternity, And since you brought it up, I'd just like to share the major differences between the Jesus of the Catholic Church, 
with the Jesus that is so gloriously revealed in Scripture. Please do. The Jesus of the Catholic Church did not save sinners completely. That's why they need indulgences. That's why they need good works and sacraments. And the Catholic Jesus did not give the assurance of salvation. And David, this will surprise, I'm sure, a lot of your listeners, but if a Roman Catholic believes that they have the assurance of eternal life, they are committing the sin of presumption. So for a Catholic, it is a sin to believe the promises of God. The Catholic Jesus did not pay the complete punishment for sin. That's why they have a place called purgatory to expiate the sins that, that Christ was unable to expiate. We also see that the Catholic Jesus did not purify all sins. That's why they need purgatory. The Catholic Jesus returns physically to the earth at the beck and call of a priest every day, 200,000 times a day throughout the world. The Catholic Jesus did not finish the work of redemption. They deny the words of our bloodstained Savior in John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus cried out in victory, it is finished. The Catholic Jesus continues on an altar. The Catholic Jesus did not redeem man from the curse of the law. In fact, Catholics are placed under the law as a requirement for salvation. The Catholic Jesus is not the only sinless mediator. They have another sinless mediator named Mary. And the Catholic Jesus is not the only way. In paragraph 841 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they dare to say that Muslims are part of God's plan of salvation. Muslims who deny the deity of Christ, Muslims who deny that Jesus went to the cross to die for their sins, they are said to be part of God's plan of salvation, Mm. where you and I, who believe in the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are condemned with over 100 anathemas from the Council of Trent. So, David, I hope your readers understand there can never, ever be unity with the Roman Catholic religion. There is a huge gulf that separates us, and it's all because they have another Jesus and another gospel. Thank you, Mike. Doctrine divides, and that includes the doctrine of purgatory, which we promised we'd talk about this morning. Uh, It's a place of temporary punishment. Uh, Neither the word purgatory or even the concept is found anywhere in Scripture, but now we're going backwards a little bit to the Second Council of Lyon, L-Y-O-N, in 1274, and the Second Council said, if those who are truly repentant die in charity before they have done sufficient penance for their sins of omission and commission, their souls are cleansed after death in purgatorial cleansing or punishment. The suffrages of the faithful on earth can be of great help in relieving these punishments, as, for instance, the sacrifice of the Mass, prayers, almsgiving, and other religious deeds which, in the manner of the Church, the faithful are accustomed to offer for others of the faithful. Mike, would you like to talk about the Second Council of Lyon, Purgatory, 1274 A.D.? Yes, in fact, that council actually elevated Purgatory to a teaching doctrine And in Roman Catholicism, they start off with teaching doctrines, and then if it is approved by Roman Catholic bishops at a council, then it's elevated to an infallible dogma. And that took place at the Council of Florence in 
1438. And the difference between a doctrine and a dogma is that a dogma can never change. It's pronounced by infallible bishops. So if the Catholic Church were ever to change a dogma, the whole system would collapse. Teaching doctrines can change, but dogmas cannot. So now we get to the the topic of purgatory, and it, it all stems from the idea that not all sins are mortal. We know from Scripture that every sin that is ever committed will be punished by death. A mortal sin in the Catholic Church would be murder, adultery, or missing church on Sunday. And then you have what are called venial sins, which are lesser sins than mortal. They don't cause death. They only cause temporal punishment in a place called purgatory. Mm. And David, I hope you realize that Catholicism is actually embracing Satan's first lie in the garden. Remember when he said, you surely shall not die? That's the doctrine of venial sins. That's the Catholic Church's position, that some sins that you commit when you disobey God do not cause death. And so this is a doctrine of the devil. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 said, in latter times some will depart from the faith, following doctrines of demons. And this is definitely a doctrine of demons that the Catholic Church embraces. So for venial sins, then, they go to a place of temporal punishment in purgatory where their sins are said to be expiated and they make satisfaction for their sins through indulgences. Now, you may remember the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation, it was really Martin Luther nailing the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg, opposing the idea of indulgences, the remission of temporal punishment for sin. And so that was one of the sparks of the Reformation. But the idea of venial sins and indulgences and purgatory are all fatal lies. We know that when a person dies, if they are in Christ, they go directly to heaven. If they do not have Christ, they go directly to hell. So this idea of purgatory is really a safety net for Roman yes. Catholics because most of them will rationalize into believing that their sins are not that serious. And so that's why it may be difficult to witness to Roman Catholics. They don't really think they need to be saved because they will be purified through the fires of purgatory for the sins they die in because they don't believe they're that serious. And thank you, Mike. There's speculation. We have to take a break, but I want to add that uh, some people think they're not good enough to go to heaven, but not bad enough to go to hell. Therefore, purgatory sounds like a reasonable idea that is, of course, not biblical. We've got more to talk about this idea of purgatory. We're going to get to the veneration of Mary. And then the Pope recently said uh, he wants to propose an ecological sin to be added to the Church's teachings. We'll be back on Stand Up For The Truth. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to David Fiorazzo. Our guest today is Mike Gendron of Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries, and we're talking in this segment, continuing actually, the concept of purgatory, the doctrine that is unbiblical, that uh, a place of temporary punishment, and we want to address a couple of really good scriptures, I believe. Hebrews 1.3, it says, when Jesus had made, so that's past tense, Jesus had made purification of sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. High priests don't sit down, but this high priest sat down because his work was finished. And then 1 John 1, 7, um, we definitely want to talk about that as well. Mike, uh, continuing the concept of purgatory. Mike Gendron. Well, sure. And we know that purgatory does not exist. It is a fable. It is hold Roman Catholics in bondage, not only in this life, but also in the next life, because Whenever a loved one dies in the Catholic Church, the family members that are still alive will go to the priest and they'll purchase indulgences to get their loved ones out of a place that we know does not even exist. When my dear old dad died as a devout Catholic, he had probably 200 different mass cards that were purchased in his name to get them to get him out of purgatory. And the way this works is the loved one will purchase a a mass card from the priest, and they range in price from 50 to $300, depending on the type of mass it is. Oh, my goodness. And they will pay the money, and then they will pr- place the name of the loved one on the mass card, give it back to the priest, and he will place it on the altar so that when he offers the Eucharist, that is said to reduce the time of the person suffering in purgatory. But the priest will not tell the family members how many mass cards must be purchased to get him out of purgatory, nor will they tell them how long they must stay in purgatory for each sin that they died with. And so this is complete religious deception and bondage. It holds Catholics in bondage after this life. We know of Catholics that have willed their entire estates to the Catholic Church so that when they die, they can be removed from the fires of purgatory by the priest offering sacrifices for them. And you mentioned First John 1, 7. That is a verse that totally destroys the concept of purgatory because there John writes, the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all sin. Not many, not most, not some. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Mm. So those who place their trust in Christ and his shed blood, they are purified of all of their sins. And this is just a hoax that um, Roman Catholics need to be set free from, and only the truth of God's Word can set them free. I'd also like to read um, Psalm 49, 7, and 8. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. Clearly, the psalmist is saying that nothing can purchase anyone out of suffering for their sins. Yes. Only the precious blood of Jesus. Thank you for quoting that scripture, Psalm 49, 7 and 8. And Mike, uh, $50 up to $300 for a Mass said, um, so purgatory, if you believe in that, this doesn't sound like a very good deal for those who are very poor or impoverished and don't have money to pay for Masses? No, it really doesn't. And um, as you probably know, this has made the Roman Catholic religion the most, probably um, the wealthiest institution on the face of the earth, because back in the 16th century, when Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences for money, a lot of the money went for the building of St. Peter's Basilica, And so here you have um, the purchase of indulgences actually paying for a place where the Lord Jesus was supposedly Mm. worshipped. It really is a dichotomy. It's uh, an oxymoron to 
to go against God's word for the purpose of worshiping him. Uh, Mike, we've got a comment from a listener. Uh, he says, I do have to agree with you that the Catholic Church has a lot of faults. I'm not Catholic, but do work with and support 40 Days for Life, which is a 95% Catholics. He said, which is where 95% of Catholics only seem to show up. And he says, where are the rest of you? So I just want to get your thoughts on a lot of Catholics do wonderful work, particularly when it comes to standing for life in our communities. And would you like to address this person here? Well, sure. And I would encourage your listeners to to help out at the abortion mills because we do need to stand in protest. And I often go out to the places where abortions are, are done. And um, you're right. Most of the people there are Catholic. So I go there for two purposes. Number one, in an attempt to save the physical life of the babies that are in the womb of the mother that is about to abort their child. But number two, I'm also interested in saving the spiritual life of the Roman Catholics who are there protesting. And so what we do is we're standing there and engaging the women who are going in for abortions. We also engage Roman Catholics with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they too can know the truth that will set them free and be saved. But uh, it really is, I think, somewhat of a disgrace to know that many evangelicals are not out there Uh, trying to put an end to abortion. Uh, We ask our church to pray that God would put an end to abortion in America. It is really um, heartbreaking to know so many babies are aborted. It's the most dangerous place for a baby to be, and that's in the womb of his mother. And so more than ever, we need to take a stand and really go out there and, and try to engage women before they make this terrible mistake to abort their babies. So Use it, though, as a platform to also witness to those Roman Catholics who are out there. Amen. Thank you, Mike. We've got about seven minutes left, and I was a little too ambitious with the topics we were going to get to today. Um, We were going to talk about the veneration of Mary as another sinless mediator. Of course, we can talk about the the rosary and the praying and Hail Mary, but I do want to talk about Pope Francis recently came out with a statement about adding ecological sin to the church's teachings, and that means sins against ecology. He highlighted the the environmental degradation. Uh, The church, he said, was considering adding crimes against nature and the environment to the catechism, the official text of church doctrine and teachings. And his quote, he says, we have to introduce, we are thinking about it, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the sin against ecology, the sin against our common home, because it's a duty, he said, and also mentioned human-caused global warming. Mike, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, this people need to understand that this, this um, Roman Catholic pontiff is probably more aggressive in bringing about a global religion than any of his predecessors. Yes. And so he is looking at all these different universal topics that he can embrace that would bring about a, uni- a union of all the religions of the world. And, of course, the ecological situation is uh, near and dear to the pontiff for that very reason. And so for him to go so far as to say that he's considering making it a sin to go against nature is, uh, again, something that he will probably continue to pursue for the purpose of bringing about unity. His ultimate goal is to unite all the religions of the world. 
And it used to be that he was primarily focused on uniting all the professing Christians. And that's why all the ecumenical unity accords have been created by Roman Catholics to bring in evangelicals. But now he's also going after non-Christian religions. I mentioned that uh, the Muslims are part of God's plan of salvation and the catechism of the Catholic Mm -hmm. Church. But more recently, he's even going after the pagan religions. Uh, They just had an Amazon synod of all the bishops um, talking about the ministry going on in South America. And during that time, he introduced a couple of pagan goddesses, pagan idols, and one of them was named uh, Paco Mama. And this is often addressed as Mother Earth, and Mm -hmm. so he used this as an opportunity to promote his ecological systems that he's trying to work through for global union. But he also, uh, David, I don't know if you saw this recently, at the same time of the Amazon Synod, he also brought in the pagan goddess Moloch to be erected at the entrance of the Colosseum, where Christians were tortured and executed for the entertainment of pagan crowds. And I didn't realize this until I did research, but the Vatican the Holy See actually owns the Roman Colosseum, and so anything that takes place there must be approved by the Holy See and the Pope. And so this was, again, deliberate to promote a pagan goddess that was used to Mm. sacrifice children. And so we see more and more that the Catholic Church is moving into union with pagan religions as well as non-Christian religions and all professing Christians. Thank you, Mike. In, the, in America, you can change the name of Moloch and just make it Planned Parenthood, uh, sacrificing our babies to a pagan god. But I want to touch on, we've got four minutes left, just want to touch on briefly, it's an important topic of people praying to someone other than Jesus. First Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And even Mary in the Gospel of Luke, we read it around Christmas time when she said, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And yet in most Catholic countries, Mike, Jesus is portrayed as either a dead man hanging on a crucifix or else a helpless infant in the arms of Mary. And there's a church in Quito. It's the largest Catholic church in Ecuador you'll see in the center of the altar a crucifix with Mary hanging on the cross. Mike, why do we only need to go to Jesus? Well, because that's what the Bible instructs us to do. There is only one mediator, as you have quoted from 1 Timothy 2. But the Catholic Church has elevated Mary to a position of goddess, and they haven't elevated her to the fourth member of the Trinity yet, but they've given her divine attributes. In fact, let me just share some of those divine attributes real quickly. Jesus is said to be the Son of God. Mary is called the Mother of God. Jesus was born without sin, so is the Catholic Mary. Uh, Jesus committed no sin. Mary supposedly committed no sin. Um, The Lord Jesus suffered on Calvary's cross. Mary suffered at Calvary's cross. Uh, They were both ascended into glory. Mary was bodily assumed into glory. Jesus is the King of Heaven. Mary is the Queen of Heaven. (laughs) Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Mary is the Queen of Peace. Jesus is the source of grace. Mary is the channel of all grace. And so you go down the line and you see that they've given all these divine attributes to their version of Mary. 
Acts 4.12, however, says salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Uh, Mike, we've got two minutes left. Any closing thoughts on how we, as believers in Christ, many of us have Catholic family or friends, co-workers. How can we address this with truth and grace? Well, I'm glad you asked that. The two most important truths to communicate to Roman Catholics would be you must establish the Word of God as the supreme authority in all matters of faith. And we talked about Mark chapter 7, and we've also need to go to Acts 17.11, where we are to test every man's teaching with the authority of God's Word. Mm. So that's the first importance. Establish the Word of God as the supreme authority. The second most important truth, show that Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. Catholics will be unwilling to let go of all they're doing to save themselves until they know Christ is sufficient. He finished the work of redemption, There are no more sacrifices for sin. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who trust in Christ. And so I would encourage your listeners to engage Roman Catholics. Simply ask them, how do you hope that you have any hope of going to heaven? What are you trusting in to get to heaven? And when they don't give the name of Jesus as the only hope, that would give them an opportunity to sit down with an open Bible and share the truth of God's Word that will set them free from religious deception and bring them to life in Christ. The Apostle Peter said the Word of God is the imperishable seed that brings forth life to those who are dead in their sin. So we must proclaim it, we must teach it, we must sow the seed wherever we go so that life can be found to those who are dead in their sin. Amen. Praise God for that truth, Mike. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Thank you for spending an hour with us this morning. God bless you, brother. Thank you for having me, David, and God bless you and all of your listeners. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to talk about some exciting guests the rest of this week. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com donate. Now, here's David Fiorazzo. Such important information Mike Gendron shared with us, and I hope you took notes on all those scriptures he referenced. But in the coming weeks, I am so excited to have the guests we've got coming up. Tomorrow, Rebecca Kiesling, uh, Save the One. She was born uh, out of rape. Tony Garule, Dr. Andy Woods, Jay Siegert, Sarah Christensen, Juan Valdez of Reasons for Hope, Prophecy Expert John Haller, Mission America's Linda Harvey, Dr. Walter Martin's daughter, Jill Martin Rishi, Todd Nettleton, Voice of the Martyrs, Pastor Mike Abendroth, Don Vino, and several more don't have time to get to. But God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. Keep the faith, my friends, and always speak the truth about things that matter.